This morning, we're looking at Hebrews 6, 8 to 12. Mostly just verses 9 to 12, though, actually. I included verse 8 only because it helps provide some context for verses 9 to 12. Verse 8 is the culmination and summary of a warning passage. The thrust of the warning in Hebrews chapter 6 is that those who do not persevere to the end will not be saved. Those who do not persevere to the end will not be saved. If there is no lasting fruit, if the land bears thorns and thistles, as verse 8 says, then there is no salvation for that person. This doesn't mean that works are the basis of one's salvation. In other words, God looks at the fruit and says, yep, the fruit's good enough, there's enough fruit, therefore I will save this person. That's not at all how it works. This does, however, mean that works are evidence of one's salvation, and thus works are diagnostic. We can diagnose whether or not we are truly saved by whether or not there is fruit. If the land bears thorns and thistles, as we see here, it is worthless, and it is near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So if you look at your life and you see only thorns and thistles, then your profession of faith is false. It's worthless. You may diagnose your spiritual state before God by the fruit of your life. If you think you're saved, but there is no fruit of a good soil, which is a new heart, then you don't have a new heart. If it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. This warning provides the context of the passage before us today, which is, like I said, primarily verses 9 to 12 of Hebrews chapter 6. I told you I wanted to bring you some encouragement from the Word of God. and Believe me, we're getting that. But it is important to rightly interpret the Scriptures. And it starts with that context of warning. But at the beginning of verse 9, Hebrews chapter 6, the tone of Hebrews chapter 6 changes. And the writer offers some encouragement to his readers, along with an exhortation. And it's this encouragement and exhortation which we'll focus on this morning. Let's begin with the encouragement. The writer sees among the Hebrews to whom he is writing, not thorns and thistles, but good fruit. Look at verse 9. Things that belong to salvation. There is fruit, evidence, that their hearts really have been changed by God and that they really are persevering. The writer to the Hebrews sees things that belong to salvation. What is it that he sees? What is the evidence that he sees that their hearts have really been changed? First, look at verse 10. There is their work. God is not so un- God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. This refers generally to all good works. The, the work of their whole life. John Owen comments on this point saying, Their obedience of faith according to the gospel is called work here because it was their main activity. Their calling lay in it. They did not attend to it occasionally. 
or when they had nothing else to do, as is the case with some people. Religion was their business, and gospel obedience their daily work. It is also called their work as they labored in it and took such great pains about it. For faith to be a living faith, it has to be a working faith. We should, therefore, look on obedience as our work, which never gives place to sloth or negligence. End quote. These Hebrews who are being addressed here were generally characterized by the work of obedience to God carried out in the context of their faith in the gospel, of course. The writer to the Hebrews is not commending them for legalism or moralism. He's commending them for their work of obedience to God, that they've not merely professed faith in Christ, but they are demonstrating faith in Christ by a changed life. They have both professed faith in Christ and are demonstrating what appears to be a genuine faith in Christ. Their work demonstrates that. And so the writer to the Hebrews commends them for their work and lists it as among the things that belong to salvation. The next thing the writer to the Hebrews sees which belongs to salvation is also in verse 10. The love that they have shown for God's name in serving the saints. Christians not only work in a general sense, in obedience to God within the context of faith in the gospel. Genuine Christians also show their love for God by serving the saints. Pastor Brown's excellent sermon on Tuesday night at the conference also made this point. Genuine Christians show their love for God by serving the saints. And so serving the saints is another thing that belongs to salvation. Another evidence in the writer's mind that the Hebrews to whom he is writing are not among those who bear thorns and thistles and are near to being cursed. Their work, and particularly their work of serving the saints out of their love for God, provides evidence in the writer's mind that these Hebrews are genuine Christians. And so he encourages them in that way. After speaking about the land that is worthless and near to being cursed, he says, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. He encourages them. It doesn't appear to me that you are without fruit. He encourages them that he sees in them things that belong to salvation. Their earnestness, as it goes on in verse 11 to say, their earnestness in their work is commendable. Their lack of sluggishness, as the ESV puts it, or slothfulness, as the King James puts it, is commendable. It's as if the writer to the Hebrews says, I can see your faith at work as you patiently continue serving the saints. 
Not looking for an earthly reward, but simply for the fulfillment of God's promises to you. These things, this lifestyle belongs to salvation. This is what saved people do. This is how saved people live. They're earnest. They're not sluggish, but through faith and patience, serving the saints out of love for God, they seek to inherit the promises. This is how saved people live. This is His encouragement. And I'd like to encourage our church in the same way this morning. This past week was tiring for many of us. Meals were skipped. Sleep was lost. Energy was expended. Many hours were spent in travel back and forth between LESC, here, this building, Berean Bible Church, driving people, personnel here, there, and everywhere. Many of you worked hard. Worked hard. Very hard. And what do we have to show for it? What earthly reward? Well, I guess we do have a few extra tables and chairs in our storage unit. <laughs> but if no, if no earthly reward, if no earthly reward, I, I'm sure none of us were motivated by those extra tables and chairs. If no earthly reward, then what? What then was our motivation in doing it all this week? I think it was love for God. And a desire to serve the saints. Am I right? The earnest work. The lack of sluggishness. The patient endurance. Between Sunday and Wednesday as the conference wore on. And fatigue set in. It was love for God. And a desire to serve the saints. That pushed us on. We weren't looking for an earthly reward but simply for the fulfillment of God's promises to us. And more on that in a moment. But for now, I just want to encourage all of you who serve the church in such a way this week. These are things that belong to salvation. Pulling together to host a conference where God's word is preached, where sound doctrine is promoted, where international delegates are housed and fed and transported, even if we didn't get to take in any of the sessions or as many of the sessions as we would have liked, even if we didn't directly benefit, even if we didn't get a hotel room, or a meal, or free transport, or whatever else others got, this is the right heart. This is the right attitude. This is the right action to take. Serving the saints out of love for God. Fruitless Christianity is worthless. But in your case, I don't see fruitlessness. I see things that belong to salvation. And I want to encourage you along those lines. Now to the exhortation. The writer exhorts those doing the things he writes about to continue doing such things. Look at verse 9. He writes... We speak in this way, present tense. Not, we were speaking in this way to others, past tense, but in your case, etc., etc. 
This implies that the warning against falling away, which is contained back in verse 6, is for them as much as for anyone else. It's for those who are presently doing the right things as much as it is for those who are not doing the right things. The writer to the Hebrews is instructing his readers that it's not a flash-in-the-pan effort that is evidence of genuine saving faith, but rather it is sustained, persevering effort over the long term that truly marks out, truly diagnoses salvation. Can we unmistakably and infallibly judge someone's heart by their volunteer work one particular week at one particular conference or any other singular instance of serving the saints? Of course not. Of course not. And that's not the author's point here. He's not trying to assure them of their salvation in the present, never mind what they're doing now because of what he's seen in the past. Again, it's not as if he's saying, I can see your faith at work. Pardon me, again, it is as if he's saying, I can see your faith at work as you patiently continue serving the saints, not looking for an earthly reward, but for the fulfillment of God's promises to you. These things, this lifestyle, belongs to salvation. This is what saved people do. This is how saved people live. So keep doing it. You're on the right track. This is the path that saved people walk. Stay on it. Don't lose heart. Remember as we read earlier in the service, Stir up one another to love and good works. Encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. That's what the writer to the Hebrews is doing here. He's saying, look, you're on the right track. You're doing the right things. Be careful that you don't fall away. Be careful that you keep going. I see what appears to be genuine fruit of genuine conversion. Keep on that path. Keep showing your love for God by serving the saints. Then the writer addresses those among the Hebrews who are not as diligent at the moment, not as diligent in the present, to copy, to imitate those who are working this way. He says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, etc. This implies that each, not each and every one of them were equally deserving of commendation. Obviously, a number of them were. In fact, the majority of them were, which is why he can write in such general terms. You're doing this. We feel sure of better things in your case. But that doesn't mean that each and every person who read the letter or heard the exhortation was worthy of commendation. The encouragement is that some or even most of the Hebrews were persevering well in the work of Christianity in love for God's name, in serving the saints. That was the encouragement. The exhortation is that those who were doing such things continue to do so. And the exhortation is also that those who were not yet doing those things begin to do so. Let each and every one have the same earnestness, the same lack of slothfulness or sluggishness that characterized the most mature among them. Let each one of them attain 
to the assurance of hope by living like a saved person. Let each and every one patiently continue in the work, loving God and serving the saints, looking for no earthly reward, but simply for the fulfillment of God's promises to them. When the author writes in verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. It implies that there were some among who needed to be exhorted to the same kind of earnest work that the majority of the rest of them were doing. As I encouraged you all in keeping with this passage, so I would like to exhort, again using the conference just as an example, this, and this sermon is not intended to be a rebuke of anyone, nor a rebuke of us as a whole congregation in any way. There's no secret message here or backhanded, you know, in the side door rebuke of someone that I have in mind. That's not what's going on here. The uniform feedback of the delegates this past week was very positive. Very positive. Everybody spoke in glowing terms about how we were able to pull together to host this conference. And my own assessment in terms of our effort as a church in hosting this conference is is also likewise positive. But of course we can always continue to grow and improve. Many of us were busy with other legitimate things throughout the week. Many of us had unavoidable, conflicting responsibilities. And for that, nobody's at fault. And yet, search your heart, as the passage says, each one of you. Were you as diligent as you could have been in serving the saints? Was I? For me, honestly, the answer is no. I wasn't as diligent as I could have been in serving the saints. I could have been prepared better beforehand. There were a number of things that I saw that I, in hindsight, could have addressed a few weeks before the conference so that I would have been better prepared. There were times throughout the conference where I grew weak and even impatient and irritable, even having to apologize to some of our church members throughout the week of the conference. I can, therefore, without being needlessly defensive, hear this exhortation and say, yes, that's me. I need more earnestness. I need less sluggishness and slothfulness. I can better imitate in the future those Christians who are more exemplary than I am in these sorts of things. I can grow. And I suspect many of us could embrace the same sort of self-assessment if we're honest with ourselves. If we couldn't, we're basically saying we've reached the apex of earnestness. We've reached the apex of service to the saints. We've reached the apex of love for God. There's no, there's no going up from here because we're at the top. I think we can all hear this exhortation from Scripture to be all the more earnest all the less sluggish and slothful in serving the saints. And whether or not with respect to the conference, even if you, unlike me, were faultless with respect to the conference, certainly with respect to other applications, that's just one application, but certainly with respect to other applications, certainly we can all say, I need to have more earnestness. And showing my love for God by serving the saints. 
I need to have less sluggishness or slothfulness in showing love for God by serving the saints. More patience, more faithfulness in these matters. Over time, each one of us, each one of you, are going to have many opportunities to show our love for God by serving the saints. It was probably going to be at least five years before we would ever even be asked to host the conference again. But between now and then even, there's going to be many, many opportunities for each and every one of us to show our love for God by serving the saints. Let us, each and every one of us, as this passage says, show the same earnestness in these sorts of things as those who are the most mature among us. Let us look around and say, who is, who is earnest in showing love for God by serving the saints? Who can we look to as role models, either in real life or in books, biographies, People that we know about who live in other geographical locations who we might have opportunity to observe sort of from a distance in our day and age of technology. Who can we pattern ourselves after that we might show the same earnestness in these matters? Loving God by serving the saints. Let us all endeavor to increasingly put off sluggishness in these matters, what sluggishness remains, and imitate those who are earnest in these things. Surely that's an exhortation that we can all heartily receive, even as we receive encouragement from this passage. So we see in our church things that belong to salvation. Genuine love for God and service of the saints. Where we're doing these things, let's keep doing these things. Where we have room to improve, Let us humbly acknowledge it. Heed the exhortation toward greater earnestness, toward less sluggishness and slothfulness, and let us press on to patient perseverance, looking in faith to God to fulfill His promises to us. And we come now to a surprising but meaningful motivation in this regard. This is the imperative, this is the exhortation before us today. Earnestness, no sluggishness or nor slothfulness, but earnestness in loving God and serving the saints. We come to a surprising and meaningful motivation in this passage. What motivation does the author of Hebrews provide to those whom he encourages and exhorts to this end? In verse 10, he provides the motivation of God's justice. In refusing to overlook their work. God is not unjust. So as to overlook your work. And the love that you have shown for his name. In serving the saints. I say this is surprising. Because justice speaks to what is owed. And we know that even our best works. Don't obligate God to us. Strictly speaking. Even our best works don't merit reward, strictly speaking. And so to hear that God is not unjust so as to overlook your work strikes us as surprising. 
shouldn't it read, God is not unmerciful to overlook your work? God is not unkind so as to overlook your work? Or something like that? The implication of saying, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. The implication of that is, obviously, that God would be unjust if He overlooked our work. If He didn't reward us. And that's another way of saying that God owes us a reward for our works. That's why I say this is surprising. Because we don't often think like this. How can this be? It would be unjust for God to refuse to reward the good works of His people. Only if He has previously promised to reward His people for their good works. In such a case, refusing a reward would be breaking a promise. And that would be unjust. And in fact, God has promised to reward His people's good works. The parable of the talents in Matthew 25 is one example of this. People are rewarded in proportion to their works, to the way that they've stewarded that which God has given them. And let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15 as another example of this principle. Listen as I read it. According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. In verses 10 and 11, we see that Paul is writing to Christians. He's not writing about the difference between building on the rock or building on the sand, as Jesus taught us back in the Gospels. He's talking about Christians, all of whom are building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Look at it. Even those who do not build well are still saved, according to verse 15. Everyone's building on the foundation of Christ, verse 11. And those who build poorly are still saved, according to verse 15. Some people build better than others. Some people use imperishables, gold, silver, precious stones, verse 12. And some people build with things that can't withstand fire. Wood, hay, straw. Everyone's building on Christ Jesus. And even those who build poorly are still saved. But the teaching of this section in verse 14 is that if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So it's clear 
that God has promised a reward, the good work that His people do for Him. Now an important distinction must be made here. We're not saved in the first place by our works. Even our best works are as filthy rags in God's sight as pertaining to justification. We can never merit forgiveness of sins by our work. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ's works. His merit for us. This is how the gospel works. We could never by our own works be good enough for God. But Jesus Christ has lived sinlessly on behalf of sinners. And He has died bearing in Himself the penalty that sinners deserve. Though He was innocent. As a substitute, He answers the law's demands for us. Bearing our penalty and offering up to God the obedience that we should have in our place. And by trusting Him, His work is credited to us, to our account, as if we had done it. And God justifies us on that basis, the basis of Christ's works. So we are not justified by our own works. We are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ's works. His merit for us. This is grace. But listen... There's more grace. There's more grace. Having been justified by grace, God is yet more gracious. He promises to reward our works. Though our works are imperfect, even after becoming Christians, though our works are imperfect, mixed with impure motives, and not done as well as they could be, Though our works could never meet the standard of God's perfect righteousness and thus could never be the basis for our justification, God nevertheless graciously promises to reward our works. Grace on top of grace. He graciously saves us, though our works were not good enough for Him. And though our works are still not good enough for Him, He graciously rewards us for them anyway. Grace, grace, and more grace. This is how it works. And since God has promised to reward our good works, those which are sincere, those which are in conformity to God's law, those which aim at the right ends, Though they are imperfect, though they are mixed with imperfection, God has promised, nevertheless, to reward those works. And it would be, therefore, unjust. Not just unmerciful, but unjust for God to renege on that promise. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews is getting at. Having promised a reward for our works, those who are trusting in Jesus Christ. God will not be unjust in going back on that promise. So keep going. Keep loving Him earnestly. And keep serving the saints without sloth or sluggishness. 
keep patiently persevering, looking for the fulfillment of His promises to you, as verse 12 says. Never mind if you're not rewarded here and now for those things. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. God will fulfill His promises. He's going to make it worth your while. So at first glance, it's surprising to hear the writer talk about God's justice in rewarding our works. But on further consideration, it's biblically correct to say it this way, and it becomes to us actually a tremendously meaningful motivation. When we think about doing good works, will we serve the saints or will we not serve the saints? Will we be earnest in it or will we not be earnest in it? Will we put off slothfulness and sluggishness or will we just do the bare minimum as slothfully and sluggishly as we can? We're saved anyway, so what difference does it make? When we begin thinking this way, this promise speaks to us. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. Do it heartily. As unto the Lord, show your love for His name by doing that which He exhorts you to, commands you to. Obey the imperatives that He gives you to, gives to you in His Word. Do it earnestly. Do it without sloth or sluggishness and know that God will make it worth your while. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. As 1 Corinthians 15.58 says then, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If you're not a believer in Christ Jesus, you cannot be saved by your works. You are not getting any reward for your works. You're going to go to hell because of your works, because they're not good enough for God. Let me be very clear about that. The only way that you can become a Christian that you can become a child of God, that you can have any inheritance in eternity is by trusting in Christ Jesus and Him alone for your salvation. Shift your confidence away from your works to the works of Christ Jesus. But if you are a genuine believer in Christ, if you have trusted in Christ Jesus for salvation, know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That having justified you by His grace, God is also going to graciously reward your sincere works done in love for His name. Those which He has commanded in His word, done even with the help of His own Spirit, He's going to reward you for it. So let us believers in Christ Jesus here at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church be encouraged by the fruit we already see among us. Things that belong to salvation. I don't think that this church is an apostate church full of false professors. I see among you, as the author of Hebrews saw among those to whom he was writing, things that belong to salvation. Be encouraged by that. And also, may we heed this exhortation to greater earnestness, to less sloth, less sluggishness, as we continue to try to show our love for God by serving the saints. May we be a fruitful people. May we, each one of us, 
be a fruitful people. And may we be motivated, at least in part, by the belief that whatever the results here and now, God will make it worth our while to live this way. As He fulfills His promise in due time to reward us for our works. Be encouraged and be exhorted, members of Covenant Reformed Baptist Church. Show love for God by serving the saints earnestly, patiently persevering, and looking for God in His justice, in His justice to reward you for your work. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all.